support for this podcast comes from CDW and Dell Technologies. At CDW, we get that migrating your business to a hyper-converged infrastructure is challenging. Like me switching to decaf. Gotta do it, don't want to do it, but gotta do it. Whoa, slow down, friend. CDW's experts can help you simplify the transition from legacy to hyper-converged infrastructure with Dell Technologies solutions that offer speed and agility. Do it, do it. Have you done it? Is it done yet? Why isn't it done yet? IT orchestration by CDW. People who get it. Find out more at cdw.com slash Tech. Introducing Built to Last, a new podcast by American Express. I'm Elaine Welteroff, and I'm excited to host the debut season where we will be deep diving into the stories, history, and continued legacy of small businesses that shape American culture. Through these important conversations, we'll hear how the Black business leaders of our past have inspired today's Black-owned small businesses and communities. Join us for the debut season of Built to Last on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Fellow knowledge seekers, I hope you've had a chance to check out the Waterline podcast on iTunes and your Android app. And if you checked it out, please give it a good rating. It's a wonderful podcast. Water is one of the biggest driving forces of life on Earth. It's been incredibly influential in human history from the time we were hunter gatherers looking for fresh sources of water to the uh, uh, agricultural revolution and building bigger and bigger cities eventually having plumbing uh, the way that it changed sanitation uh, irrigation and what is the what's the future of water. Are we going to have enough of this stuff? How can we make more clean, fresh water? I just listened to a very interesting episode, Alchemy, Turning Milk into Water, Sustainable Water Management. And this episode is all about this very candid conversation about water, coffee, industrial practices, sustainable value chain, and social responsibilities with uh, this man, Carlos uh, uh, Galli, who... Uh, whose job it is to make sure that the biggest food and beverage company in the world is leading a healthy and sustainable lifestyle. Incredibly important stuff. You guys are into science. You guys are into learning, caring about the world, caring about our future. This podcast is for you. Check out the Waterline podcast on iTunes and your Android app. Welcome to the Here We Are podcast, everybody. Sorry we missed the episode last week. I had one in the bank, but I ended up being hospitalized. I am a bipolar, bipolar one, in fact, and I went through an extremely manic episode and needed hospitalization. I've been manic recently for the last, basically since I quit drinking and smoking cigarettes, because that's how I self-medicate. But this was the biggest manic episode that I've ever had, and you're very lucky that I was able to record three, I'm very lucky, I should say. We all are. It's really interesting. I was able to record these three episodes while in the middle of a manic upswing, and that's why these three episodes sound a little different than some of the other ones. Usually, I drink enough to depress myself enough to be on the lows because the manic episodes are the ones that make me feel invincible, and then I end up jumping off something that's too high or spending money too impulsively or doing some other thing that gets me in all sorts of trouble. We're going to learn a lot about bipolar and other um, mental ailments. Sure. As the podcast goes on, these are the types of things that I love talking to people about. And so I'll find some experts to talk all about that. But it's what I wanted you to notice is the difference. And so I'm in these three episodes, the last one, this one, and the next one, um, you may notice I'm more a little more playful. Some might say erratic, <laughs> um, uh, enthusiastic, and 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 just really toying around with ideas a lot more and having bigger, more grandiose ideas. Some of them don't always make sense. Some of them a little delusional. I think it's really really interesting how the brain can do that because you guys have heard me just plowing through depressed states before. That's kind of the norm. When I'm off in some way on the podcast, usually it's toward the depressed side. A lot of times this stuff doesn't affect me at all, and I'm I'm in the middle, and I'm just a regular old Shane, whatever that is, whatever that 
means. So I thought, why not share with you guys what I'm going through? You'd be interested. And I've also come up with some interesting solutions to some issues lately. I think that Patreon may really be the way to go. I was thinking about how Twitter has not helped my life that much and trying to write meaningful things in 140 characters. It's always a poor representation of what I'm trying to say. And I've been thinking about kind of blogging for a long time. When I do write longer posts on Facebook, which is only once every few months, people love it because it's a little more thought out. I take my time with it a bit more. And I want to do that. And so if you subscribe to Patreon, I'm going to do something. I haven't figured it out yet, but if you subscribe now, I'll bump you up to whatever the next tier is. I'll kind of grandfather you in to the next tiers. But I want to I want to be sharing kind of a, a weekly thing at least, at least weekly. I don't want to push it more than that right now until I'm uh, sure that I'm properly... Um, balanced and medicated now. I'm medicated for the first time in my life, which is interesting. But I want to explore that. I want to talk about what what ended up, what led me to hospitalization. I want to share just my writing. I want to share some of the, when I'm working on a new act and writing that out. I thought that you guys might be interested in that. And I want to give some options for just the raw the raw interview if you subscribe to me on patreon you'll have access to just some of you might not be in the mood to hear me go on and on about whatever's going on in my personal life and you just want to hear the interviews i want to make that available on patreon and i also want to use patreon as, so that i don't have to go on and on i want to use it as a little more of a journal a little more of a forum maybe i'll do some web blogs as well or maybe I'll do one video blog a week and one written one. I'm trying to figure that out. I'm writing a bunch of stuff right now. I have a whole bunch of different ideas. And usually I write and I write and then I just sort them out on stage. But I wanted to try this. I wanted to try trying to sort them out and getting them in a nice, clear, concise way for uh, for Patreon. So go on there, patreon.com slash Shane Moss. And whatever you can do uh, to support me, it would be really helpful. I've had to cancel work, and now I have medical bills and co-pays and that sort of thing. And I have some very, very, very ambitious projects. And right now, money is a factor. It won't be. It won't be for that much longer. But money is inhibiting my ability to do the things that I want. Like for example, I wanted to go to Burning Man for. Uh, to, for my documentary and be able to record a bunch of things. And I even had a free ticket. I even had a place to stay, but it, you still need a bunch of equipment and buy things like that. And I just didn't have the money right now to do that. So there's things like that that I'm missing out on that a little bit of support from you guys would be really helpful if you do enjoy the podcast. But I don't mean to pester you either. I'm just kind of brainstorming solutions two issues in my life and so yeah i think it might be a fun way for people to share um and comment on some of my ideas i want to take suggestions from you guys the whole world of possibilities i'll fill you in more next week but this is a fantastic episode this episode is the middle of the three episodes that i really wanted you guys to hear uh, that I recorded in a manic state. And this one's all about reframing, all about empathy. And I think this is, I think this was the most grounded of the three episodes that I recorded. And just really, really um, interesting and important stuff. So I hope you enjoy it. And I'll talk to you on the other side. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Welcome to the Here We Are podcast, everybody. I am here at the University of Denver talking with Associate Professor of Psychology, Katiri McRae is joining us. How are you, Katiri? I'm doing really well. Thank you for such short notice. I just reached out to you 
made kind of a last minute stop through Colorado. Quick plug, everybody. Don't throw a lot of plugs out there for geography, <laughs> but uh, Colorado and the Denver area, one of the best places on earth. It's fantastic. Where are you from originally? Sort of a half Michigan and half California. So I have a little bit of a Midwestern upbringing in uh, me, but I mostly identify as being from California. Oh, okay. Northern California. Yeah. I'm from uh, Wisconsin originally. There you I go. go through Michigan a fair amount. It's okay. Yeah, it's you know, right. yeah. I lived there from zero to ten, so I'm not too picky about. You yeah, know, yeah, there was snow yeah. and yeah, I go through Grand Rapids, Ann Arbor. There's some parts of Detroit that are starting to get better. Man, we could talk about geography all day long, but let's get into your work. You study emotion and emotion regulation, mm-hmm. which is maybe the next level. It's good to be mindful of our emotions, and then how do we kind of start taking maybe some control of them after that i got into meditation years ago and also you know obsessively reading science for a very long time and learning about emotions and what drives our behavior and and there's this kind of mindfulness practice that's very enlightening and you pick up on these little things in your inner world but then i think the next step is sort of okay you're aware of that now what do you do about it right and this is something that dabbled in a little bit in the podcast but i think that really needs to uh start being pursued further we've covered a lot of the more base level stuff so i'm very excited to talk to you about this so why don't you uh why don't you give me like a give give the listeners a little overview of your work sure my interests are actually a bit broader i'm sort of interested in almost all instances of emotion cognition interactions so how emotions influence our attention and our memory and our decision making and our ability to do other kinds of cognitive control and then most of what i've sort of published on is on the reverse how our cognitions can influence our emotions so how the sorts of things that we're thinking about change the way that we're feeling and i think that actually even that first insight like the fact that what we think about can change how we feel for some people is the the like you know, door opening, mind blowing, you know, kind of first realization, like, whoa, there's a connection between our thoughts and our feelings. So some it's people, red pill. yeah, yeah. Some, some people totally, they're like, you know, a lot of times in our experience, we actually bring people in and sit them down and say, what we're going to be doing today uh, is we're going to be teaching you how to change how you think. And and then that's going to change how you feel. And some people are like, okay, got it. Let's move on. And other people are like, hold the phone. Yeah. We're going to do what now? Like, how how is that even possible? And so, um, yeah, yeah. But but the a lot of the, the work that I've done has been in particular looking at an emotion regulation strategy called cognitive reappraisal, which if you speak CBT is also referred to as cognitive reframing. So this idea that changing the way you think about a situation or the, or the way you think about a particularly emotional thing uh, can change how you feel about it. And there have been a couple decades of research done by me and, and many of the people who trained me and others um, saying that that's a pretty adaptive way to regulate your emotions. People who do that more often are uh, in general sort of slightly less depressed and slightly more happy. Um, and it's also a pretty effective way to change your emotions. So if you have a particular goal of I want to feel more of this or less of that, that using reappraisal in a, in many situations, not, not every single one, but in many situations, that it's an effective way to sort of reach your emotional goal. Um, and the fun part is we also tend to measure emotion in a lot of different ways. So we ask people how they feel, we get what their body is doing, we get what their brain is doing so that we have sort of converging evidence that this is a decent way to, to change how we're feeling. So if someone's listening right now and they're hearing about this and, and they are one of those people that are like, whoa, hold up. You mean <laughs> I can I can change the way I feel through thought and my feelings are influencing my thought, but I can change the way that I feel through thought, which then can change my thought. Hold up. This is like too big and hard to get around and, and there's going to be a lot of barriers and I don't I don't know a lot about this information and maybe they can flip it and go, wait, this is an opportunity for me to learn something new and challenge myself and see things in a different way. Sure. So this is kind of what reframing can be like in a way and like if that's just a little metaphor, perhaps. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, what what you just did expertly was uh, what some people would refer to as a threat versus a challenge appraisal of, of a situation that might be challenging, right? Or of a situation that might be threatening. So when we're faced with something new, there's the like, oh my gosh, this is new. I can't do it. I've never done it before. I have no idea if I have the resources to actually do this successfully. 
versus, all right, this is going to be hard. It's not going to be a piece of cake, but I can do it. I have skills. I've done things like this in the past. And those two different um, appraisals or evaluations of the same situation can lead to really different ways of engaging with what you're doing, really different ways of your body responding, you know, and one of them sort of puts you into like retreat protect mode. And the other one puts you into sort of like, <laughs> this is the scientific term for it, but it puts you into sort of like badass go for it mode, yeah. um, you know, which it's not like we always want to be in badass go for it mode, but I, I've gotten myself in <laughs> a little trouble here and there, <laughs> but if you're in on my the fence, life in badass go for it, yeah. mode, but that's because, but I've also created more opportunities than right. uh, because of that. Right. Um, so, it's, you know, there, there's going to, there's going to be a few bumps and bruises along right. the way if you do that, but there there is a lot of opportunity out there if if you can see it i think that also um i have quite a mastery for putting myself in adverse situations sure. it's just I, <laughs> I i in fact like need it it's like i'm more addicted to i'm kind of an adrenaline junkie mm-hmm. i need new stimulation i get bored very easily mm-hmm. and so i but i kind of so i like move toward i need to be moving toward that fear all the time and so and so when you talk about well i've been in a situation like this before a lot of times on a base level you'll be in like a new place or be doing a new activity and you'll be like i've never done anything like this before right but you can flip that too and say well i've also been in situations that are completely alien to me before and i learned and adapted and got through it and then that opens up totally a seemingly limitless that's a next level reappraisal you just went up one level of similarity and it's like well I've never yes. actually been at an illegal chicken fight before, <laughs> but you know. Whatever. What skills do I have? I have I've tried a new before. Slurpee I've flavor. Taken, <laughs> I've watched the Animal Planet. I've seen boxing. Yes. <laughs> you can just kind of Mr. Potato I've Head. I've calculated it economic risks before. <laughs> I've played online poker, and yeah, and so I have I a guess, feather I, bed. I guess that's. I mean. I'm glad you brought that up because maybe not every experience is worth, you know, worth exploring necessarily. <laughs> like, uh, you know, I, I mean, if uh, maybe chicken fighting isn't the best. Maybe you're sure. like, hey, I don't want to support chicken yep. fighting. You know, so you can, you can do novelty that for well. novelty sake. Maybe. Yeah, and then that's another level. Whoa. Yes. I know. Yeah, it's, it's endless. So, what are some other um, what are some other reappraisal tools? Uh, so, can you just rename that? What you say? Threat versus opportunity. Threat Was versus that? challenge. Okay. Although, sure, that okay. that could that For could sure. work as well. Uh, threat threat versus challenge. Totally. I mean, sense. there are a there are a bunch, and you know, again, that the sort of key insight here is that the way we evaluate something can lead us. To down a different emotional path. Um, and there's some really awesome theoretical work that's done sort of in the field of appraisal theory of emotions that there have been a few people who have tried to like really strictly delineate like what are the qualities of situations that lead to some emotions and not others. So let me give you one of my favorite examples. So let's imagine you are driving uh, in the morning to come uh, meet someone for some sort of work purpose and you've said you'd be there. Are you... Going to give me a hard time for being five minutes no. late today. Okay, no, <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No. I know. I know. I was. I was giving myself a hard <laughs> time for that. I knew you weren't. So that was. I often. I often am giving this example I when I'm lecturing, and yeah. I might have been five minutes late. Right, so right. it's to engender a little bit of empathy <laughs> for that. But uh, you know, you're you're in the road driving. Um, and, you know, you know, you're five minutes late. Um, and, you know, one of these drivers, this never happens in Colorado because one of the perks of being in this geographical region is the drivers are insanely nice. Like drivers will break and wave you over and uh, and they merge way too early. And the total side. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, someone cuts you off in traffic um, and, you know, you're late and then, you know, they cut you off and then they like proceed to go three miles under the speed limit like and you can't get out of that lane and so you know you're gonna you're on track to, to still being late so at first you might have a response of like anger towards that person of, like you idiot like how could you do this you're in the fast lane you're doing it all wrong you're breaking the rules you're making me late and that could lead to this very sort of angry response but you can imagine sort of reframing your evaluation of the situation which is you know i knew this was an important meeting 
Traffic isn't always predictable. Sure, you know, my map app told me that I would get there exactly on time, but maybe I should have left a buffer. You know, maybe I should have set my alarm 15 minutes earlier and got out of the house 10 minutes early. And, you know, maybe I shouldn't have stopped at Starbucks or whatever, it, all the all the different chain of events that you had control over. So what that does is that flips one of uh, these what's called appraisal dimensions, right? And one of the appraisal dimensions is the attribution of who's at fault for the situation, the anger response was someone else is at fault for the situation. The second response, you flip that and say, maybe I'm at fault for the situation. And that goes into a realm of a little bit more guilt or regret, right? That you could have done something differently. And so it's the same external situation. It's a lot of the same qualities of you're feeling upset and negative and you're kind of aroused and your heart is thumping. But the mental switch of like, it's that guy's fault to it's my fault changes the quality of the motion pretty dramatically. And you can imagine like that appraisal dimension of um, the attribution of who's at fault for the situation is something you could flip back and forth. You could go the other way, right? You can imagine someone who is grieving over losing a loved one and they feel this insane guilt and regret over something that they could have done you know, to mm. save this loved one, right. you know, this is like the goodwill hunting moment, right? Where a good therapist or friend comes in and says, there's nothing you could have done. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. Right. And that might d diminish the guilt. And in some cases it might actually turn it to anger. Be like, it's that guy's fault. You know what I mean? Like he's the one who decided to have, you know, I don't, not that when people pass away, it's always their fault, but maybe it shifts to something else. And maybe that's an important part of the healing process that switch from guilt to anger. So you can kind of like toggle back and forth between different emotions. And again, these there are these like awesome grids that I geek out about of like all the different appraisal dimensions and how you can flip from like one emotion to another. That one I think is particularly clear. Some of the other ones are a little bit more muddled, um, you know, but there, there's all these like little distinctions like between, you know, guilt and shame and embarrassment, for example, that seem like maybe synonyms at first. But if you kind of dig into their appraisal dimensions, they're different. And then they have different consequences for what your body might do, the actions you might take, right? When you're angry at someone versus when you feel guilty, you do very different things if you, you know, end up walking into the building you're going to <laughs> alongside that person. You know what I mean? Yeah, punch them versus hit yourself on the head like, or I, uh, you know uh, maybe apologize for honking at them versus might have been extreme yeah, <laughs> yeah you yeah, know right. uh curse at them under your breath don't right. give them the job they're walking into interview for <laughs> right. you know all of those sorts of things yeah well and then i i suppose you can combine some of these as well so if you're so say you're flipping this from this is this person's fault for cutting me off to this is my fault for uh being late but you can also use the other one and at the same time like threat versus challenge and yeah. s and and say well this is an opportunity i find that often when we get frustrated with others it's usually this it's usually a little bit that we're frustrated with i mean this we usually can empathize with the situation we've right. cut someone off else off before and that can be an opportunity to learn like oh reminder that's what it looks like when i cut <laughs> other people off right you know right and uh that's i mean that's the irony of of robin williams needing to hear his own message more than right. more than give it you know and and that's his, and then that's not also not fair to blame him hey, right 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 and so yeah there's there's just so many ways of yeah. of flipping yeah. And I think if you're a decently introspective person or a decently curious person, so like, you know, I think people who engage in mindfulness practices tend to fall into this category. A lot of emotion researchers tend to fall into this category. Mm -hmm. Like if you are someone who likes noticing your own emotions and noticing the relationship between situations and the emotions that follow, um, then almost any emotional situation is like more data, <laughs> you know, for you to, to learn about yourself or to learn about how emotions work in general. So there's always this kind of fallback reappraisal of like, isn't this interesting? Um, right. You know, that, that this happened, like I'll, I can catalog, add that to the catalog yeah yeah well mindfulness is like then you're kind of talking about the observer which is like almost a third dimension so you know if you're flipping that's it's kind yeah. of like two sides of the same coin which is this two dimension and then if you pull out and now you're observing this yin and yang effect and then you flip that and then it's the yang and the yin and then if yeah. you look on top if you f put them on top of each other now they're not black and white there's all this gray area there and now this little thing has created this infinite 
thing instead of this uh, this one line that's this interesting swirl shape is just half of infinity and um so yeah lots lots <laughs> lots and lots of layers it keeps going um so how how did you first uh how did you get into this why did, why did you get interested in this in the first place that's a good question. I'm going to try to tell the short version of the story. So, um, I'm timing you. When I was an undergrad, yeah, <laughs> the long one <laughs> takes a few weeks. Uh, That's yeah, when, when I was an undergraduate, I was actually a double major in uh, drama and human biology. So, drama was the, you know, school's version of the theater major. And then human biology is a sort of special interdisciplinary major that was a biology major, but focused particularly so on humans. So, not plants and, you know, uh, a, a lot of the sort of nitty gritty non-human stuff, but particularly focusing on human anatomy, but also combining that with some social science. So we studied the brain alongside with psychology, which is a natural pairing. We actually studied like the systems of the body alongside with like healthcare policy to be like, here's what the kidneys do. And here's how our lawmakers decide whether or not to cover kidney transplants kind of like perspective. Um, you know, we studied evolution um, as well. And uh, so that that was my undergraduate experience was going to like acting classes and doing like musicals at night and then like going and learning about how the human brain and the human body worked. And um, the, in hindsight, the natural intersection of those two things is psychology, right? The natural intersection of those two things is like how our, our mind and our brain kind of like work together. Um, I didn't articulate that for a couple of years. I just, I thought I was this kind of, I thought, I thought they were two completely separate interests. Um, and then totally by chance, the this is the version of the story that that makes me seem a little bit more flighty but that's okay uh i had a crush on a ta actually at one point and the ta of one of my classes was like looking for subjects for his honors thesis and it was an fmri like brain imaging study of memory super boring like memorize all of these pairs of things and then we'll show them to you in the scanner um and i was like of course i'll come to your study uh, you know i'll, I'll lay in here so, weird scary device <laughs> yeah <laughs> totally uh so i went and 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 was on my back in a weird, scary device. Uh, didn't get me anywhere with the TA. He was not interested. Uh, but he got my brain data, and I got 20 bucks and a picture of my brain. Um, and I just got this idea that, like, that's what you do, you know, when you're when you're a senior is you do a kind of honors thesis and you get to scan people's brains. So I I completely naively emailed the guy who ran the one of the brain imaging labs and was like, I want to do one of those honors thesis things. And he met with me, and he was like, you pretty smart? And I'm like, I, I think so. And he's like, will you show up all the time? I was like, yeah. He's like, okay, yeah, okay, you can do that. So he introduced me to a guy who was a postdoc of his at the time. And this man's name is Kevin Oxner. He's now a professor at Columbia University. Um, and he is sort of, um, he was at that time merging the history of research on emotion regulation with um, fMRI research and how to kind of bring, uh, you know, things like cognitive reappraisal into the scanner and study which parts of our brain do that. Um, and he gave me a couple of tasks that were very tedious um, that he later told me that like multiple undergrads had been assigned and like bailed on because they were so boring. Uh, one of them was transcribing these um, tapes, like little physical um, tapes of people talking to a recorder about what they remembered of emotional pictures that they had seen in the scanner. So it was like kind of free, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Like stream of consciousness, you know, oh, I remember this bus and the bus reminded me of my grandma. It was just like people and I had to transcribe them into like a word document. Um so I, I thought that was actually fascinating to just hear people like talk about the pictures they had just seen. And uh, and then he he said, we're doing this new study and we need more negative pictures. So look on the Internet for more disgusting, like negative, like things that will make people feel. Did you really find strongly. any? <laughs> it, 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 the, how, it, how long was that journey for? <laughs> so here's and the so thing. I spent the next several years. Yes, exactly. For just one negative picture. On the well, Internet. the. I was about to say the internet was newer back then. I guess okay. that's always true. It wasn't like AOL days or anything. Was it a little more innocent back it then? It was definitely a little bit more innocent. There wasn't like Google image search. Okay. I don't think there was Google at the time. So it was just, there were like these specialty websites that I'm sure in hindsight probably had some like kink thing associated with them. Yeah. I didn't like find any of those, but why else would you like just gather like hundreds of these like gory pictures? Yeah. Um, and I was like an RA in the dorms at the time. So like, you know, people would come in being like, oh, Kateria had this problem in my class and I wanted to talk about it and my screen would be like you know surgical pictures and like people impaled on things and like babies with tumors in their eyes and hmm. disgusting things so yeah, yeah. so neither of those tasks turned me away from psychology research forever so I did my honor thesis which was a um it was actually an fMRI project that I got to do as an honor student which 
um, is a really big task. It, it ended up taking, we ended up like throwing away all that data and several years later, like re scanning it all. And it took like eight or 10 years for that whole thing to get published. Um, but uh, yeah, that's that's what sort of originally got me into it. And those studies that I first worked on were these reappraisal studies. And I had to sit down and teach people how to do the reappraisal and then think about the different cognitive components of reappraisal. Like what are the different steps that people are going through when they're doing this monstrosity that is, you know, transforming their their feelings from one thing to another. So um, yeah, that's that's what sort of got me hooked. Hmm. Um, how, what, what tools are you kind of looking forward to in the future? I mean, you've seen, so you had to throw out all that data, you had to learn from it, you had to advance. (laughs) And this is like, you know, these fMRIs are exceptionally exciting, but they're, if we flip and rephrase it, they're also incredibly frustrating and no, and very limiting. Yeah. Um, but how, how do you think the advancement of that of that world is going? Is it? It's, I mean, it's interesting. I I tend to not put like all of my eggs in one methodological yeah. basket, you know, because you know if I if someone sent out a memo tomorrow, like by the by, all fMRI data is bogus. Like I don't want my entire you know career to shut down. So I tend to. Um, you know, I, I do some survey based, you know, questionnaires. I'm just asking people how often they regulate their emotions one way or another. I do some behavioral um, tests where I just bring them in. I'll show them pictures and do those sorts of things. But after each one, I'll just ask them, how do you feel now? How do you feel now? So more experimental stuff, but with the main measure being how, how people say they're feeling. Um, you know, and I have a physiology lab. I get people's heart rate and blood pressure and, um, you know, how much they're sweating and, and those sorts of things. Um, and then I also, you know, sometimes throw people in the scanner and get what's going on in different parts of their brain, both parts of the brain that are being successfully regulated by emotion, as well as the parts of the brain that are actually doing the the regulation. So my hope in that is that I'm not like tied to any one particular methodology. But I think to actually answer your question, the thing that this is cheating, I'm going to answer, I think the thing that's changed the most since I started doing it, right? So especially I think within the physiology realm, um, you know, the, the kind of wearable trend has really like changed the game in terms of that. Like we used to, you know, a physiology lab is not cheap to kind of set up and get good data from. And um, there used to be ambulatory devices that you could get people's, you know, pulse and uh, skin conductance and, and those sorts of things on, but they were really expensive. And, you know, now like, whatever percentage of the population like voluntarily wears a device that tracks you know a a bunch of their physiology and most of them will click on almost any user agreement you put in front of them you know so uh not that i would ever sidestep informed you weren't supposed to say that publicly i never would but you know it's people are uh, people are a lot more casual with their personal information including some physiological data right and so i think it's really exciting that we can get a lot more real world like send people out into environments that we normally you know couldn't have gotten data I mean, it is so. I mean, I look. I look at. Perhaps my bias is that I'm overly mindful of a negativity bias that is pervasive amongst uh, human culture, and I, I, I kind. My take on it is that I do believe that people are allergic to life, and our world, our modern world, is overly safe compared to our mm. our past one and this mm. is kind of an allergic reaction that we're we're having um but um i wonder like the the flip side of these um th- these terms and conditions that no one's reading cuz how could you i mean yeah. you could but <sighs> You would be taking so much time to like to make one <laughs> tiny silly little decision, and it's almost a metaphor for for like, look, yeah, you could be manipulated, right? Like you could, uh, you could, but and there's a million things to consider here. Yeah. But sometimes you just have to go for it yep. a, a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Well, and it's you know it's it's a trade off of whatever it is that's in those agreements. You'll never know for the convenience of like using that product, you know. And there's it's it's so the other thing about I mean I'm sure that there's at least some degree of psychological engineering here, right? Is because they usually don't 
some of them warn you. Some of them, you know, they're coming, but some of them, like, it seems like you're just going about your everyday business and they're like, oh, by the way, click this thing now or else you can't do what you wanted to do. And you're like, I have to do it in the next five minutes. I don't have time to read it. Um, there's like this one weird suite of things that I have to do on my work computer. And every time I update it, it changes my default browser to ask.com. Why does that happen? It's there horrible. Is, it's like so bad. That. I don't get ask.com. I get some other one. But yeah. Oh, my it, gosh. It feels like I'm browsing in the 90s again every time it happens. Yeah, yeah. And I have to go. And I've let, I've clicked. I have to do it like once a year. And I've clicked yes to it like Poor at least geez. 50% of the time. Even for Jeeves. <laughs> no one cares about Jeeves. I know. Anymore. I know. He's screaming We've for all sidled help. up with Siri. We don't need help him anymore. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's just gra- this old man grasping onto the, the last little bit of I life. I thought I um, had job and security. Sending him out on the ice. <laughs> but, oh, Jeeves. You, did, you got us so far. But, but I have a feeling if you asked Jeeves for something, he'd be like, hold on let me call a travel agent like he doesn't know how to find anything really yeah, yeah, he right. knows how to find things 10 years ago. yeah yeah his methods are a little outdated <laughs> <laughs> like, let me call my nana she might know it's interesting how we're able to anthropomorphize informational systems in such an yeah. interesting way and it helps when you name them jeeves uh, yeah yeah but i mean i think we do it with google oh and yeah then, and it's then true. it helps with like that they're flawed, so that and that provides this human-like <laughs> quality to them, you know. Um, uh, so, um, when when you when you think about this stuff, when you're doing you're doing studies on others, or you're being mindful of your own behavior, or you're observing this in others, either a stranger or a friend or whatever. Um, another layer is when, when do you decide to intervene in, in your own, like if you're, Hmm. if you're going, okay, I can rephrase this right now. And then, okay, now I'm looking at two sides of this and then, and now I'm able to measure, but is it sometimes you have to go, is this a lesson that I stop myself from learning, <laughs> you know, like, or else you go down the rabbit hole. This is, yeah. Like, do you, do you insulate yourself? Mm. Do you like, or do you just let the little kid in your head touch the hot oven and burn itself so that you don't have to keep on dealing with like watching every damn thing that it's doing? Uh, you know, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's a like, really good question. It, it's like, we're all kind of, children in our own or at least certain different levels of our culture and our inner worlds are we're we're all both like teachers and students at the same time so well it's true i think what and i think what you're pointing out is that like it's not the optimal state to regulate your emotions all the time right especially if you think of regulate in that most people mean regulate, they mean sort of like squash, right? So like nine times out of 10, when people say I have problems regulating their emotions, what they mean is uh, I I feel too much unwanted emotion, which is usually negative emotion, right? And one of the cool things about emotion regulation that I've studied a little bit is that you can turn up or down like multiple types of emotions or like the example I gave to you before is actually a qualitative switch between two different types of negative emotions. Um, but like one of the things we've do for we've done, for example, is compared reappraisals when people diminish negativity. Like if, you know, they get into a car accident and they're like, oh, well, it's not that bad, you know, versus enhanced positivity, which is like maybe this is a learning experience that I'll grow from. I'll be grateful that it happened one day. So you can regulate emotions to like increase positivity. But when you think about like controlling emotions, regulating emotions, like keeping a lid on emotions, we certainly like don't all strive to be fully controlled, like robotic, non-emotional beings. Very few of us, hopefully. Um, So if you're not always regulating your emotions to sort of diminish them, like that means you're making some strategic choices of like, I'm going to feel what I'm feeling now. I'm going to let it go, you know, unregulated. Um, And there are other times when, you know, I just can't. I don't have any moments where when I have an emotion and I'm like, I should really know how to regulate this given what I study. Like, I don't feel extra pressure to like do it well because it's my area of specialty. But I, I will say like discussing reappraisal, especially like almost every day, you know, of my life, it's become pretty habitual for me. I do it without um, always even intending to. And there are some really intense emotions that I have where I'm just like, I can't 
right now. I just can't think of another way, you know, or I don't, I can, I can think of another way to think of it, but I just don't believe that yet. Right. Like that's not actually helping me. And so I have a, I have a, I have a fallback reappraisal for those moments, which is I'll be able to reappraise this soon. (laughs) Right. Like I can't right now. I'm too upset, but I'll be able to reappraise this soon. And you know, it's like people who are close to me. It's like a transience reappraisal. Yeah. It's like a stopgap reappraisal. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That helps too. Um, of like this won't last forever. Right. Yeah. That I think that's a relate. It's a slightly different one. Okay. Like you know, one is th- I won't have all. to endure this forever. Let's. Yeah. That'd be a good. That'd be a good <laughs> career goal. Just big catalog, yeah. a dictionary of reappraisals. Um. Uh, but yeah. So the this won't last forever is a great reappraisal yeah. as well. Um. And the one I have is uh, maybe add on to that. It's a this won't last forever, and b after a little while. I'll be able to intervene in a way that can actually even make me get over it faster than it otherwise would. Um, you know, but there's, I, I'm also fully, you know, a believer in sometimes you just need to feel your feelings and especially, you know, I mentioned before my undergraduate degrees in theater and I, I have done a lot of sort of performing in my lifetime. And I think people don't go into performing who don't enjoy kind of going on emotional journeys, you know, so sometimes you have to sort of, enjoy it for what it is and realize that there are peaks and valleys to life. And that's the like, that's the beautiful color of, of life. So you, you got to go with it. So this is we're I think we're starting to get a little bit into kind of um, commenting on how all of this stuff is very subjective and contextual. And so when you talk about how we don't want to be robots necessarily, there, there is interesting um, there, there's some study that I have no idea who did it. Uh, so it doesn't matter. Um, the, the, the concept is what's important here. Sorry, person that ran this study that doesn't get any credit. They ask people, would you rather people have, if you had to pick everybody else, either have complete control of themselves at all times and no emotion or have emotion and no control and and then mm. they ask themselves would you rather have emotion and no control or control and no emotion and people completely flip it if it's someone else they want everyone else to have control over themselves you be responsible everyone else needs to be a better parent more responsible take responsibility for themselves and then you kind of kick up your feet and sit back and like wait for other people to do that so you don't have to because it's a pain in the ass and and so but you you don't want to live a robotic life like i don't want to live a robot i want to feel interesting i've never heard of this study but when other people feel it's like well you can't just have these people feeling all the time they'll be crazy people just doing you can't have them doing whatever they want to do I want to do what I want to do. Right. They can't be. Everybody can't do what they want. Right. It's true. <laughs> or how am I going to? Yeah. 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 I think there's a similar paradox of like things, you know, it, behaviors that I don't personally engage in. Like, yeah, the government should regulate that. You know what I mean? Like, ooh. But if there's something that I find enjoyable, like I have I have a right to do it. No one can tell me whether or not I can do that. Yeah. That's my own. Yeah. Know? Yeah. So I, I it's think interesting how a, much we project and then yeah. like what lessons we learn. From well, and there's also a, a matter of trust, right? Like we trust maybe there's some implicit of like our own emotions. I, th- I think that there's like, um, there's not a word for this. I don't think. But I, f- I feel like all of us feel like our emotions really at their core actually have some sort of rhyme or reason to them. And a lot of them do, right? A lot of times emotions are really adaptive and, and putting us in the mode that we need to be in to handle a particular situation. But I think we sort of like somehow trust our emotions more than other people's where like you can easily see in other people that they're being irrational because of an unrelated emotional state. It's so easy to see like, you know, that you're sister or your spouse is like yelling at you because they had a bad day at work and it doesn't really have to do with you like leaving your shoes by the door whatever but when you do it you're like no it, it really is bothering me about the shoes that, like i just know that's what it's about yeah, you know yeah. so i think there's a difference there in terms of like when it's in your own experience it, it feels like there's some kernel of truth there i i definitely feel like i've noticed in my own relationship you know all, all ro- romantic family friends not all the time but 
well, I guess there's there's different levels to this too. So I'll get I'll get frustrated with things that I identify with. Like I I remember um, my old roommates. I'd get mad at them for being messy, and I'm the messiest person you will ever meet. <laughs> they were like a hair messier than I was. So then it's like, well, this is ridiculous. Uh-huh. You, like, uh-huh. you can't be yeah. messier than <laughs> I am. <laughs> but, like that's yeah. like. How could you live like yeah. that? <laughs> you know, there, I think maybe, you know, there's an old Seinfeld joke, I want to say, or maybe it's even someone older than that. But it's like everyone who drives faster than you is a maniac and everyone oh, who drives yeah, slower I than you is an Carlin, idiot. Maybe. Is it Carlin? I don't I, know. I, I don't want to speculate. Uh, I don't know. I guess I just did. So I did. Want That'd be to. a whole other game show. Yeah. <laughs> Whose joke is this? <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, that, that's, but I think I, I that, that applies in a lot of ways, right? Like, and I, yeah. you know, I have a two year old, so I think this applies to parenting a lot, right? Like anybody who is stricter than you is like a total, you know, overbearing parent and anyone who's looser than you is a completely, you know, permissive, like, you know, f- somehow like that, whatever you've settled on is like the perfect balance of all of those things. But and, then the complete opposite side is of, of it is when you don't identify, like we all have our own um dysfunctions and our own skill sets and positive traits or whatever and we often um have a hard time identifying with like you know i, I might say uh have dealt with real bad depression issues or whatever but when i see someone with ocd which is not a thing that mm-hmm. i have i'm like <laughs> Why are you yeah. stop making those damn lists? You don't right. need to open the door. What are you doing? You know, but it'd be like someone yelling at me for for like, why can't you get out of bed? Yeah. Or, you know, totally. Well, and that's I think that's one of the keys to sort of empathy, right? Is like widening out beyond the specific situation. Right. It's kind of like what we were talking about earlier in the like, I haven't been at the illegal chicken fight before, but I've done other new things like. If you're at the level of empathy where you're like directly comparing, yeah, there's no similarities there. But if you're like, oh, I've struggled with doing things that like I know I shouldn't do, but I but I I do them anyway. You know what I mean? Like if you frame it that way, suddenly you like have more empathy for that person, even though they're checking the door 10 times and you're having trouble getting out of bed in the morning. Like if you, you know, kind of look at it in that situation and, you know, there's there's a tangent to be had. <laughs> Yeah. Well, there's also, I mean, so if you want to, so empathy is this amazing tool to almost enter someone else's supercomputer to like see what information, gain access to some of their information or at least some like imagined access. It's this interesting kind of hack. Um, And, and so if you want to heighten, like, you're the thing is is you're only you're only imagining it you're not believing it you're you're not like you're like passively watching it like you're admiring and you might be picking up a lesson or two but you're not really acting on those we have like these sports heroes we or or you you watch this fiction or you go to church or whatever it might be and and then and then you like get a bracelet and you're like what would jesus do well okay if you have a picture of jesus in your head and this is this thing that you're aspiring to be then just use empathy put yourself in a shoe and then like just be that okay what would he would he be being calm right now would he be feeding this homeless guy that he's walking past just don't imagine just like be it yeah and then take on and then figure out what those biases are or if you want to be michael jordan or or you're listening to the this oh I, i like this uh this this podcast host i want to go around and travel being comedian just do it go like (laughs) i want to go around learning from people go around learning from people like get out there well and i think there's actually an in-between area which can be really instructive right so on the one hand there's like the completely dry like just in my head i'm going to try to imagine what it's like to be this other person then there's what you're suggesting, which is like, go do actually do it for a little bit and see how it goes. And I think there's actually like an intermediate option, which is a little bit of sort of like role playing and getting into character. And like, this is the kind of thing people get trained to do, at least in the in the tradition of like acting training that's been done in the States. Like this is what acting training is, right? It's 
one of the reasons I got super into the emotion regulation stuff is there's a whole other emotion regulation strategy that I haven't studied a ton, but a little bit um, called expressive suppression, right? Which is not showing what you're feeling on your face. So everything's raging in your body. Thoughts are the same. Feelings are the same for the most part. But your whole strategy for controlling your emotions is I'm not going to let all you people know what I'm really feeling on the inside. So you mask it, you dampen it down. Um and when I first learned about this emotion regulation strategy, I was making connections to the kinds of things I was learning in acting classes about how to ex- exquisitely control your face, like right? how to actually like move you know muscles and express certain emotions. And I was wondering like, are actors you know better at expressive suppression? Or are they worse at it because they're trained to express it? And I had a really good friend in college who like you know instead of working um, outside in, worked inside out. Like she wouldn't work on her face; she'd work on her like heartbeat. She'd be like, I would try to make my heart race if that's like what the character needs. So I was really interested in this like process by which people get into c- character for acting and what that means for emotion regulation. And there's actually someone who studies this in children. So one of my my colleagues, Dr. Talia Goldstein, she um, actually looks at what happens when you are training children, you know, in typical acting um, classes to say, okay, you're not completely this other person, but it's for like this small amount of time, you're going to put yourself in the other person's shoes. And if you really dig into it, acting training isn't about like pretending harder. It's actually about these empathetic bridges, right? It's mm-hmm. actually about like, oh, I've never, I've never had my mom die, but man, I was bummed out when I had a puppy for only a year and he got hit by a car. And so you like use that situation as a bridge to like you you identify like you both of those face on your puppy so it, precisely really precisely <laughs> and so but it's it, it's this recognizing situational similarities that lead to the same emotions yeah. that can kind of get you there um and then a lot of noticing what happens in your brain and your body when you do that so talia's stuff yeah. actually like has been doing um more or less like um, versions of experimentally controlled or even like randomly assigned like trials of taking kids of various ages and randomly assign them to like fine arts class versus acting classes. And she sees increases in empathy in kids who do the acting classes. Um, and it's not taught like she's coded the classes like the teachers don't get up and say we're going to, you know, perspective take or we're going to use empathy like they just teach people norm- normal acting techniques and say here's your script and like well what do you think this person would do it's it's all on your feet and so it has some of that experiential stuff that you were talking about mm-hmm. is people are actually doing it but they're doing it as a fictional person, you know, for a small yeah. amount of time and they're working out that sort of muscle so i think that's like really cool as a, as a sort of you know a a go between yeah well it's also that would that would then give you the opportunity to try on more hats and build a better find the better uh flavor of a person uh you know selection of traits that fit you better yeah and and gives you the opportunity to empathize with a really wide range of people you know a lot a lot of actors say like they've never played an evil character because once you start to play the character like that character is in the right that character believes they're doing the right thing you know and if that's iago like you know that's if it's Corella Deville, whoever you're playing, like that person has, you know, goals and, and you and, walk off stage and just start murdering puppies <laughs> all over the place. It happens more often than you think, <laughs> you know. I yeah, that's uh it, I mean there's um the mask is interesting too, because what does it take to put on the mask? This is something like as a performer, mm-hmm. you know, you take it it's so so you're scared to get in front of this crowd of people. And why wouldn't you be? This is, a, this is like you have a computer in your head. There's a whole network. <laughs> There's like a supercomputer that you're standing in front of that you're up against. And so this is intimidating. And so, but you want this thing to believe you and you recognize that you believe things that look like they know what they're doing and so then you go, so I'll look like I know what I'm doing. <laughs> so you put on the, and so then there's these weird things that you do. You see it all yeah. in, in com- like these ways in which like comics will be like, oh, you'll get that one on the way home and stuff like that. It's like, no, they got it. It just wasn't, you know, it wasn't that funny. It was like what you did to, you had to like attack this thing a little bit, right. like as a defense mechanism yeah. because you're feeling this judgment, which is this like very, uh kind of painful it can be painful if you're looking at it that way unless you're looking at it as an opportunity um do you feel like your strategies have shifted like with more experience in front of audience like yeah do you, yeah all the have time. you just gotten more comfortable and more okay with it or do you t- 
You yeah, always try new well, things. you just like work toward the fear. You're like, mm-hmm. okay, I got that down. Now challenge myself. What am I uncomfortable with? Singing in public? Well, okay. And, <laughs> <laughs> and then you're just like, oh, that felt a little foolish. Oh, do it more until you just stop feeling foolish with it. Can I dance? I don't have any rhythm. How would I go about doing that? You know, okay, I'll get like a little, uh, I'll get some like spinny poi things that'll like help me get a sense of rhythm and then I'll start feeling like a little bit of a flow when i listen to music with it and then that's how and then like okay now i guess i can start bouncing around a little bit in public and you know it's just slowly kind of taking down that uh you know i mean really it's just a lot of it's a lot of uh you you being exceptionally critical of yourself and you thinking that other people are as well this is just the spotlight effect Mm -hmm. and combined with like imposter syndrome. Yeah. Who the fuck am I to talk about imposter syndrome? But um, I uh, everybody, everybody <laughs> so, should talk about imposter. I've never yeah. met one person who's immune to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. Uh, but um, so, so yeah, you find these. You try on these masks, and then after a while, you go like, "Oh, people like like if you just take that off, people are like, oh." Oh, that's interesting. Like when I got to see the Phantom take his mask, like that was brave of him to do that and show his gross face. <laughs> I never, I never understood. Like I, when I was younger, I, I thought there must be some like greater metaphor in the Phantom of the Opera that I was missing. And I recently saw it again. I was like, no, I didn't miss anything. It's just a kind of weird story. Yeah. About- it's, uh, I, I mean, that that's so like we've evolved to uh anyway i don't i'm not here to teach you things um (laughs) uh, 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 but uh what are um so uh what are what are some um thing takeaways for if if you want either if people wanted to pursue this what we've been talking about more and they're like this is the first so this is someone's first episode that they've listened to say and they're like what the that was okay whoa hold up a second like you said they're having that reaction some people are like yeah 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 whatever i get it i've already worked my my way through all that and and i see it in a different way and i've already come to my own conclusions but but someone's hearing it for the first time (gasps) what the okay wait uh, where where's a good place to start would you say yeah it's a, it's a really good question um i mean i think that there's I'm, and i'm not i should this is my my disclaimer point that i'm not a clinical psychologist so i have uh i i don't have uh, specific recommendations like for individual people um you know that could necessarily help them but you know I think that that there's a fair amount that you can sort of do on your own, right? Like having recognized this, there's a fair amount that you can do to try to like ask yourself um, in situations where you're feeling um, a way that you don't want to feel like, is there some way that I can change what I'm thinking that that changes the situation? And one of the keys is to kind of keep searching for reappraisals that work. Like sometimes you come up with duds, you know, you drive past a car accident at the side of the road and you're like, maybe that's they're filming for a movie set right there. And you're like, yeah, I don't, I don't really buy that. Like, <laughs> sure, that might make me feel better if I believe that. But like, that was a real car accident. And, you know, there, there are people who are hurt there. So I need to come up with a different one. And then you're like, maybe they, it was a car full of crash dummies. And like, that's probably not also going to help. And finally, you might be like, oh, well, the ambulance was already there. If it was really bad, you know, they would have marked off more of the road and you know uh there's a hospital nearby so it could have been a lot worse you know for for the people in the crash and and maybe i can you know learn from this and 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 drive more carefully you know put down my phone while i'm driving since i saw that crash on the side of the road so it takes practice um and, and you don't always stumble upon a really good reappraisal your first try um and i think the other thing is like uh, like anything else that you're trying to change in your habits, like having people who are holding you accountable, like telling people, okay, I'm going to try this new thing. If you hear me really riffing and like ruminating on something that you feel like is an opportunity to re- like, can you help me? Can you offer suggestions? Can you just remind me to reappraise? Um, 
you know, and again, if it's something that you really have a, a hard time and st- sort of struggle with, again, it's the cornerstone of cognitive therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy. So having someone who has taught, you know, hundreds of other people how to reappraise and there are, you know, if you go in and see someone, there are like little worksheets you can give and, you know, have weekly updates and progress. And there are actually even some apps that are out there. I'd have to look them up to know what they are, but there are some like apps that will help that you can go into and um, some of them are like crowdsourcing reappraisals. So you can put in like a situation that just happened to you and other people will offer you reappraisals. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so so uh, not trying to sort of do it all yourself, um, but sort of frequency and, and trying to do it pretty often and like reminding yourself to do it. Um, there have been a, a fair number of cases. There have been a fair number of studies where bringing people into the lab and teaching them to reappraise most people are pretty good at it. Like every once in a while you get someone who just, it doesn't, it doesn't go. But most people, if you sit them and you give them like several examples of films or pictures, they eventually can start generating their own and and they say that it helps them feel better. Um, You know, but it's really how often people do it in their everyday life that ends up, you know, predicting things like uh, depressive symptomology or everyday positive and negative affect. So um, just because you can do it well, if you don't use it, what, you know, what's the, Mm. what's the use? So we talked a lot about um, a lot about mindfulness on the podcast in the past. So hopefully some listeners maybe checked into meditation, maybe checked into sensory deprivation or flotation tanks or these various other other tools. Now we're talking about reappraisal. So a lot of times you hear this new information like that, and especially when it's very nuanced like this, it can seem very kind of soft and a little woo-hooey. And and because that's how nuance sounds, that's how complexity softens these hard black and white things. And so you go, is that, so really what you're asking when you judge something like that is you're going, well, is this actually going to work? Will it work for me? So you can test it. How do you prove it to yourself and see if it will work for you? And I'd say, here's, here's a quick thing you could do right now. Here's a study that you can do on your test. You can test this and you can falsify this. And it's going to seem a little silly. If you don't believe in, in the power of reappraisal, there is information that you had at the beginning of this podcast, and now there's information that you have at the end of it. You've learned, you now have a different set of information than you had at the beginning. So reappraisal, the definition is an assessment of something or someone again or in a different way. So play this exact conversation over again from the beginning with the information you now have and see if you notice anything different that happened in the beginning and then try it again if you want to after that until you're bored with it and when it works because it will then start doing that to your life and then start going back further and further and other things and just start looking back and back as far as you can and it will change things quite a bit i can promise you that and um so yeah your first homework assignment everybody um yeah and i think you know one of the things to the other thing to keep in mind is that it's not it's not like a magical cure-all it's not right. like oh i now have the power to shift my thinking and, and i'll never feel you know anything negative again or it'll always work and they're, they're starting to be you know even within the scientific literature there's tend to be these over generalizations and for a long time it was like reappraisal good expressive suppression bad like in terms of like what are good and bad emotion regulation strategies and there are of course nuances to that so there are cultural differences in whether expressive suppression is is harmful and then there are some situations where reappraisal is like not the right choice right like if you have a job and your boss is always telling you like you need to do your job differently if you go home and you're like maybe my boss is having a bad day (laughs) like no actually you need to listen your boss is saying do this thing differently (laughs) you know what i mean like you actually have to take an action not just reframe how that's making you feel inside, you right. know? So there are definitely situations where it's not, it's it's not like if you reappraise a hundred percent of the time. Yeah. I'm so glad, glad that you're reappraising reappraisal right now, because mm-hmm. this is a real opportunity for us to now take a different look at reappraisal. So sometimes there are diminishing returns mm-hmm. in those reappraisals stuff. Sometimes you were right the first time around and now you're kind of using things and now now you're taking all this extra time to listen to the same information over and over again you have better things to do ah what is the right decision to make at least knowing your options will give you a few more tools to pick from one would hope well thank you very much uh kateri mccray 
been a pleasure. Yeah, nailed it. So bad with names. <laughs> for joining me. This is a fantastic conversation. I think our listeners will enjoy it. As I, I know that I already know that they do. Most, most of you, probably, listener being a group of people, one or two of you is a real dick. But uh, mo- mo- most of you are wonderful. Um, and so thank you so much for listening and being uh, exceptionally curious, mindful, and inquisitive people. And we'll talk with you next week. Next week on the podcast, we're going to be talking about information, how it's sent, how it's received, where it lives, how it takes on a life of its own. What the heck is information? How does it work? The physics of information. Really cool conversation. I'm very excited about this. Make sure and check out the Laughable app. You can subscribe to all of your favorite comedians there and be notified when they are on as a guest or a host on any other podcast. And also, check out the Jimmy Fro podcast, J-I-M-M-Y-F-R-O podcast, and you can hear great bands if you want to hear more undiscovered bands like Spy Convention, which you're hearing in this outro, then check out Jimmy Fro podcast and make sure and reach out to Jimmy if you are a podcaster and you need help with some editing. He edits this podcast and the feedback and the quality has been amazing ever since. Thank you. Hello, I'm Dave Ross. Hey, and I'm Hampton Yunt. And we host Suicide Buddies on Starburns Audio. That's right. It's a podcast about suicide, but not to make light of it. We actually talk about suicidal thoughts, depression, kind of with a sense of levity that Dave and I have with each other. He's my best friend. Come on. Yeah, we're buddies. (laughs) Suicide Buddies. (laughs) That's the title. One of our favorite episodes that we've recorded so far is about this guy, Jan Pataki, who was a Polish aristocrat in the 19th century, Mm -hmm. and he, uh, one of the reasons it's possible that he killed himself (laughs) is that he thought he was a werewolf oh check out a clip it also makes me think like we were talking about in the norway uh black metal episode how like just the culture of your surroundings can affect you like he's in a castle in poland he's like i mean if you lived in a castle in poland and no one knew anything about anything you might be like i'm a bat i'm probably a bat That's like literally what happened to Batman. <laughs> he literally is in his mansion. He's like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm, I'm a, a bat. bat. I'm a bat. I'm a <laughs> bat. I'm a, I'm I'm a bat. bat that helps people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bat that helps people. I'm a, I'm a rich... I don't know what you want from me. And uh, my, and my a... girlfriend, she's a cat. She's a cat. My she, girlfriend's she, a cat. She steals things. She's a woman who steals things. She's a cat. I'm a bat. I'm a I bat. Help people. She's a cat. We fight a penguin. My. Uh, my... <laughs> <laughs>